Thank you, Trevor and uh, worship team for guiding us before the throne together this morning. Uh, good morning. Welcome to church. It's a joy for us to be uh, together. I may not remember all these details accurately, but I did talk to Diana McDonald this morning about Brianna, and I just encourage you to be praying for her this week. She's still in the hospital, uh, still on a, a breathing tube, and it has to come out by Wednesday, and uh, or that would mean another surgical procedure for her and Diana's like, we just need to pray that that surgery thing doesn't have to happen. So as you remember the next few days, please uphold uh, Brianna in your prayers. We are uh, working our way through the book of Esther. And as you grab your Bible and open it with me today, we're going to be in chapter uh, seven. But as we go there, I want to thank uh, Jeremy and Don, a couple of our Shepherds Council members who preached the last two sermons in the book of Esther while I was away uh, serving my chaplain's duty at the National Scout Jamboree. So I'm a chaplain for the Boy Scouts. There I am in all my glory in that uniform. Every time I leave the house in a scout uniform, my wife winks and smiles. And I know it's not endearing. It's amusement on her part. Uh, I'm standing there next to one of my lifelong friends, uh, Jay. He's a mental health worker in central Washington. He and I went to high school together and uh, did scouting, and we encounter one another from time to time. And we were at a uh, place called The Summit in West Virginia, the mountains of West Virginia, a coal mine that had sat dormant for like 40 years and was purchased 10 years ago by a donor uh, to create the next uh, world destination high adventure camp. And in 10 years time, donors have given $450 million to build the world destination for outdoor high adventure for kids. And it is indeed that, um, there's a picture in that lower corner of uh, four uh, ladies. Early one morning, I got up out of my tent and they were sitting on this platform down at the end of the row where my tent was. And there was this picturesque scene of you know hundreds of tents beyond them. And I thought, how cool that these ladies got up to have their personal reflection and inspiration before diving into the day. And I thought the picture was so cool that I walked up to them to show them the picture, only to realize that they had created a smoking lounge and they were having their morning cigarette. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, I thought you were doing, you know, like some kind of personal reflection. They're like, oh, we are. <laughs> so... Um, but a great time. 15,000 kids uh, attended. I was in a particular base camp of about 2,000 scouts and scouters. My job for the 10-day event was to provide pastoral care uh, in whatever form that occurred. And I have one more picture after this. It shows our, our uh, base camp staff team uh, gathered. This is a fundraising building up on the hill <clears throat> that looks out over the camp uh, donated by the J.R. Marriott <clears throat> Corporation. And uh, so we took a nice picture. But it was a joy for me. The church allows me two weeks a year to serve outside the walls of the church in a ministry endeavor. And so my endeavor uh, for this year was to go and uh, serve at that event. 
Uh, let's let's uh, continue our series in the book of Esther <clears throat> at this time. A few weeks back, uh, someone had recommended to me the movie Sound of Freedom that's on in theaters. It's a movie about, uh, kind of based on a true story about the sex trafficking industry in the world and about a U.S. agent who gets involved and becomes unsettled in his heart because while they're able to prosecute certain crimes, for the most part, they're not allowed to go after the perpetrators uh, outside of our country's boundaries. And this particular agent was so bothered that he ends up kind of resigning his commission with the government and goes down and his heart is set on rescuing some of the kids. Um, it was a good movie, it was a moving story, but as we left, I gotta tell you, I was in tension in my heart. I, I felt conflicted because I left that movie with the distinct feeling that if I were not a pastor and served as a law enforcement agent and were locked in a room with a perpetrator who mocked and laughed, at the things that he had been able to do. I thought, you know, in my flesh, it would be like me to wanna to turn the camera off and execute some human judgment on this kind of an individual. And that was a tension for me, and I thought, Lord, why am I feeling that way? But I wanna tell you that I think there's something human about justice and our desire to see it happen and in Esther chapter 7, I've titled this message Poetic Justice because we are going to see Haman get his deserved rewards. Haman is going to die in chapter 7. And it leaves us as people of faith with a bit of a moral conflict. Is it okay to rejoice in the punishment of evil? And I hope that we can unpack this theme together this morning from this age-old epic piece of literature. I, I've, I've uh, subtitled this series, The God of Great Reversals. And what we're going to find is that there are, there are probably the greatest reversal in all of the story of Esther is in our chapter today as Haman gets the consequence that he had devised and conceived of and created for Mordecai. All that he meant for Mordecai to endure falls directly on him and this grand reversal, this pivot happens in a single day's time. It is epic ancient literature that we are going to be reading about. Last week, Don walked us through chapter six, and if you remember that story, part of what happened is Ahasuerus, oh, this is kind of cool, while I was at the Jamboree, one, some of our chaplain staff were Jewish rabbis. And I said to this Jewish rabbi from New York, I'm preaching the book of Esther, and he said, why would you preach that this time of year? And I said, because we're not liturgical, I can preach whatever I feel like, right? Whatever sounds like it meets the needs of the body. I don't have a calendar I have to follow. And I said to him, I said, hey, help me with something. How would you pronounce the name, the Persian name of the emperor? Because I thought, I've tried, Hebrew is hard. It's just a hard language. And I've taken a stab at trying to pronounce his name right. So here's what the rabbi said. It, the Persian name of Xerxes is Ahash Verosh. So I was close, not 
completely on it, but ahash verosh. I get that from a Jewish rabbi. I'm going to take that as gold on the pronunciation of that hard name. What we found is that Haman goes to Ahasuerus and, and Ahasuerus says, Haman, my trusted counselor, what should, what should the king do for the man that he wants to honor? And Haman thought he was talking about himself. So he said, oh, I know. Let's put your best robe on him and let's put your crown on his head and let's put him on your grand stallion and parade him through the city and have it announced as he's being paraded through the city. This is what happens to the man that the king wants to honor. And Ahasuerus says, that's an awesome idea. Mordecai needs to be honored. You lead the parade and call out. And Haman is standing there thinking, what just happened? And, and that is the scene that ends uh, chapter 6. In fact, I want you to look with me in chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. I want to pick the story up there. After this parade where Haman has to lead his arch enemy, Mordecai, and Mordecai is exalted, it says in verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. What did he do after the parade on horseback? Mordecai went back to his spot at the gate. It says, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. He was in shame and shock because of what had happened. And he went home, verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh. It's the only time we hear his wife mentioned by name here, Zeresh, twice. His wife said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, and by the way, he is, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. It wasn't enough that Haman had to endure the great disgrace of leading his arch enemy and and lauding him in front of the people of the palace. But now his own counselors and wife almost prophesied to him and say, listen, this guy that you've tangled with, if he's of the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and he is, you will surely fall before him. And without pause, verse 14 says, and while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So here's Haman, mid-sentence, having a terrible, bad, awful day. Somebody say, amen. Like nothing, like he, it was the worst. And he immediately is rushed from the worst day off to part two of the queen's banquet. In a sense, I have to think it, uh, it assuaged his weeping conscience to remember, oh yeah, the queen, she likes me. Only I have been included with her and her husband in this grand banquet. And yet even as he is whisked away mid-sentence, mouth hanging open, sputtering in shock at what he's had to do for Mordecai, he is led off to the party. And it is at the party where the grand chapter 7 will take us. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, so the king and Haman 
went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is now the third time that the king has promised his bride, Esther, ask whatever you want. I I will be generous. A yes is coming, honey. Just tell me what it is that you want. And he says it in a unique way. He says, what is your wish? And then he says, and what is your request? Obviously thinking that this is a singular answer he anticipates. But Esther picking up on his exact words, crafts a very careful response in verse three. Verse three says, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Have you ever wished you knew exactly what to say at a given moment? Don't you envy the person who seems able to crystallize the perfect response with just a moment's notice at those times when a good answer really matters? It's phenomenal to me that Esther is that person and this is her moment. It's almost as if God has provided her the words with which she answers her husband. Hint, hint, I think he did. Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Her response to the king's question is divine, which certainly is why she was able to craft such an eloquent answer. Make no mistake, God, who is not mentioned in this passage, is obviously there with her. He is in her mind. He is moving her to words that perfectly fit the moment. They were beautiful words, words like the wisest man who ever lived described when Solomon said a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's artwork to the ears. What an answer. Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. How do you become a recipient of God's words in those divine moments? How do you and I become vessels through which God would say, let me, let me provide the script for you? It always made me laugh when Jason Nightingale would speak a, a book of the Bible from memory dramatically as he would, and people would come and say like, oh, Mr. Nightingale, that was awesome. And Jason always said, I have a great writer, right? <laughs> How can you and I have a great writer for the things that we say at those divine moments. And it reminds me of the story that 
is familiar to us about Moses who argued with God and said, God, don't make me talk. I like, I don't do that well. And you you remember how God responded to him. He said to Moses in Exodus 4, "Uh, Oh, my Lord, Moses says, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And it seems to me that this is almost like a look back, which we've talked about in this series, a way that we read Esther's divine response and we remember that God is able to provide the perfect words like apples of gold in settings of silver. God provided Esther with the perfect response when it mattered the most. And I want to tell you something, folks. That's what God does for us. He meets us in moments of our greatest need, and he does what only he can do. The prophet Jeremiah knew this truth. God said to Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. God met Jeremiah in his moment of need and provided divine awareness of what was about to happen. A couple weeks ago in uh, West Virginia, I was uh, about to um, turn in early, because I'm old, I turn in early, all right? even on a camping trip, like the sun doesn't go down until hours after I'm already asleep, right, out there. But it was about eight o'clock and I thought, you know, I'm not ready to go to sleep yet and I'm kind of done with my day's work. So I got up and I took a walk because when you're camping with 2,000 scouts, there's awesome energy everywhere you go. And so I went on, the, I walked the loop of our campsite and down, saw all the patch training and kids eating and playing games and laughing. And I visited with a few and made my way up the back loop. And, and in each campsite, the, the scouting organization uh, is really on it as far as practical care. Uh, they recognize they're working with teenage kids and and that there will be emotional issues. And so they have this place called the Listening Ear Tent. It was staffed by college students from the University of West Virginia that were doing kind of a practicum. And they're there as a safe place to go in and listen. And they have fans and cots and comfortable chairs. And a kid who's feeling homesick or forlorn or sad or wounded in heart can drift in there and just meet and talk in this safe atmosphere. And, I, and the chaplains kind of work hand in hand with these listening ear tents. And as I walked by, they had a transport and they were taking a couple of kids up to the main medical clinic. And the director of listening ear said, hey, Pastor Tim, um, we're gonna transport these kids. I've gotta take some staff with me because we have a very strict two adult rule anytime kids are present. He said, could you hang out in the tent for a little while just to make sure coverage is right? I said, that's fine, sure. And I ended up sitting down And there was a 16-year-old girl in one of the cubicles being ministered to by those college students. And her 17-year-old boyfriend was sitting out there talking, and he kind of got handed to me. 
And I said, hey, tell me what's going on. And he said, well, my girlfriend's here and she has, I love her, but we're not allowed to date because in scouting, you can't be actively dating someone that's in your unit. And they don't want kids to pour all their attention just on one or the other. They want them to, you know, enjoy the program. And it was complicated because this girl's mom worked for the scouting organization and had to enforce policy. And so he just, we can't date. And he said, I'm here in West Virginia and I can't hold her hand or put my arm around her shoulder and it is breaking me, right? These are, these are the world woes of 17-year-olds. Everybody say, I remember, yeah. And he starts to talk, and, she's, and then he's like, and as soon as we leave here, for the next three weeks, she's heading this direction, and I'm heading that direction, and the world is over as far as I'm concerned, right? And so I'm talking with this guy about the dilemma that he's going through. And, and the Lord put me there at that moment for a reason, because after I listened to him, I said, let me tell you my story. I said, I met my wife, Uh, when I moved to Salem to go to college and she was a high school kid in the youth group that I started volunteering with. I'm two years older than she is. And we met at a summer camp and realized that we liked one another, but I was just getting ready to start an internship. And um, we met with the youth pastor and the youth pastor told me, listen, if you wanna do an internship, you can't date her. He said, if you wanna date her, you can't work in our group. And I said, you know, I'm here to study to be a pastor and I, I, I need to learn. And so my wife and I, for the next two years, were friends who liked one another but didn't date. And I said, I want to tell you something. That sucked. <laughs> that was hard. It was hard. Because we knew that we were, you know, the greatest day happened when she graduated high school and we could finally officially date. And by the way, when she graduated high school, I left the country and went to Israel for a foreign study program for the next six months. So then we wrote letters. We came back and got engaged and people said, do you know her? (laughs) (laughs) Like they just didn't know the story. But at our wedding, the youth pastor got up and read the letter that I had written him two years before saying, I like this girl but I want to honor God and I want to prepare myself for ministry. And if we have to wait, we'll wait. Uh, Cool moment to have that read in our wedding ceremony. And then I told this kid, listen, 35 years, I know that sounds weird to you, but 35 years of an awesome life. Four kids, great friends. It's been the most epic adventure. And then I said to this young man, I said, I said, and I asked him his faith background, and he told me he was a believer. And I said, here's what God says. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and he'll direct your paths. And I said to him, I said, young man, you do the right thing, and God will take note of that, and God will honor you for that. And I know it's hard. And then I said, can I pray for you? And as soon as I said that, the tears started flowing down this kid's face. And I put my hand on his shoulder and I prayed for him. And sitting next to me was an 80-year-old Jewish man who had been working in that booth, who was watching this exchange with his eyes 
a bulge. And when we were done, he said to me, he said, Pastor Tim, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. That in 10 minutes, you have that kind of pastoral influence on a young man. And I just said, I said, man, thank you, Lord, for bringing me here because I didn't, I didn't feel like I could sleep yet. And he put me in the right place with the right story to encourage the right kid. Who, because God's, God's that smart. He can move the pieces on the chessboard and he'll do that in his way. Why? Because he loves to put the right answer in the right place for the right reason to minister to the heart of the hurting. And he does that for you and me. And once in a while, we get to be a part of that conduit. God gave Esther the perfect answer. She continues in verse four. Look at what she says. She says to her husband, she said, for my, for my uh, wish, I want my life, and for my request, my people's. And then she continues in chapter seven, verse four. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She is quoting directly from the memo that was sent out to the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire at the instruction of Haman. Haman had the scribes write this down. They are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated, dictated from the mouth of Haman to the scribes and sent throughout the empire. But as we read this, I have to think that this is the first time that Ahasuerus has heard those specific words. I don't think he was aware of what was written in the edict that went. He authorized it. He added his signet ring to it. It carried his imprimatur, his authorization. But I don't think he ever read the thing. And I think that because of the response that we will see him make. And it's a fascinating thing because I want you to keep your finger here and I want you to turn back to Esther chapter 3 and verse 9. Because this is where the whole question that Haman had, pro, had posed to the king came out. In chapter 3 verse 9, Haman says to the king, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it in the king's treasuries. What was Haman's request of the king? That they be destroyed. A Hebrew word, a, a, a particular Hebrew word. It's the word bod, destroyed. And it's fascinating because the word bode in Hebrew is a word that's kind of a super broad word that has lots of varied meanings depending on the context in which you use it. One of the meanings of bode is to kill or annihilate. That's a valid meaning of that word. But another meaning, depending on the context where it is used, could be understood as to enslave someone, bode, to enslave. 
and a whole bunch of other possible meanings. And I want to tell you, this is, I think, what's going on. When Haman asked the king if he could bode, destroy the people of Mordecai, the Jews, and then offered an exorbitant amount of money, I think that the king thought he was asking if he could enslave them and therefore was paying a grand sum of money to purchase the workforce. I think that's what was happening there. I don't think the king understood the sinister nature of Haman's request, which was to kill, annihilate, and destroy. And therefore, as Esther poses her question in verse 4, she says to her king, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And then she lets the king off the hook, I think, in the next sentence. She says, If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women... I would be silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. In other words, if we had just been sold into slavery, it wouldn't be worth bothering the king today. And I think, <coughs> I'm not saying I know this, I think that this was an epiphany for the king, that this was a new realization and I think that in part <coughs> because of the king's response that will follow. Notice verse 5. says, Then a king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? And who has dared to do this? The king is caught off guard by this revelation. Who possibly could have sold the queen and her people to be killed, annihilated, and destroyed? I never authorized that. I thought you were wanting to enslave them as punishment for something. Oh, I was okay with that. Not this thing. So who is he? And where is he? In Hebrew, the king's question rattles on as six monosyllabic words. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared? Just six words. Commentator Karen Jobes describes the sentence in Hebrew as one that sounds like machine gun fire when pronounced aloud. Who is he? Where is he? Who has done this? And then with perfect timing, Esther drops the hammer with her staccato response. Her words almost convey the sense of a finger pointing as she thunders out with perfect cadence. A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And immediately, terror strikes the heart of Haman. In describing it, the narrator paints a powerful picture with a minimum number of words in verse 6. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Not only are Ahasuerus and Esther mentioned by name, which doesn't always happen, but they're also mentioned by their title. It's King Ahasuerus and Queen Esther 
allying the royal couple together against the perpetrator of this insidious plan. Look at verses 7 and 8. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. I have to imagine that the king got up and walked away because not only was he angry, but he also is wrestling with, I think I authorized this. Excuse me. He's replaying the tapes in his mind of what was it that was said and what was it that I agreed to and if I've authorized it, how can I go back on it because a, de- a declaration that is authorized by the king according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be revoked. What, at, what have I done and how am I going to get out of this? So the king retires to the garden in anger to process what is happening. And here's poor Haman, stuck with no good options available to him. He was in the room with the king and the queen. Now the king is left mad. The queen has pointed her finger at him. So what does he do? Does he follow the king to try to persuade him against it? Well, the king's mad That's not a good option. Does he leave? Well, that'll make him look guilty and only send the soldiers after him. Or does he stay and try to persuade the queen that his intent wasn't as malicious as it certainly seems? And the passage continues now. It says, and the king returned from the palace garden to a place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. It could be that he was bowing down. Falling and bowing are the same word in Hebrew. Whatever it was, he was throwing himself on her for mercy as the king walks in. All of it in direct contradiction to Persian palace rules which said that no man was permitted to ever be within seven steps of the king's wife or mistress at any moment upon the penalty of death if it's transgressed. Ahasuerus walks back in as Haman is casting himself on the couch where Esther was, begging for mercy. And the text says, the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Uh, In other words, Ahasuerus doesn't have to figure out how to get out of the fact that he was complicit in this crime because now Haman's committed another crime and he's fallen, he's, he's molesting my wife is how he framed it, even if that wasn't actually what was happening. That's what the king saw. And immediately the guards were there and it says that they covered Haman's face. Verses 9 and 10, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. 
and then the wrath of the king abated. By the way, hanging on the gallows in our English language, we would picture that happening with a noose, but that was not the Persian way. The gallows was a tree or a branch that was hung up, sharpened on one end, and the victim of the capital crime would be impaled on the tip of that spear, and the body hung in that way. In this instance, Haman became the victim of his own devices. I think the greatest reversal in all of the story that we are reading. How ironic is it that the man who we're told in chapter three, verse one, made sure that his, his uh, seat in the palace was high above all the other subservient servants of the king. He wanted to be up on high above everyone else, and now he is hanged on high above everyone else. Well, there you go. The man who's been so obsessed with his own elevation is now truly elevated 50 cubits high. It's the perfect and proportional reversal. Haman is impaled on the gallows that he has prepared for Mordecai, Mordecai and the disgrace and public humiliation that he designed for Mordecai now becomes Haman's final fate. Mordecai has gotten the honor that Haman wanted for himself and Haman has gotten the gallows that he wanted for Mordecai. One day, he's on top of the world. The next day, he's fallen to utter humiliation and disgrace. And you think about all these things happen in the same day. In the morning, what should the king do for the man he wants to honor? I know, a horse and a crown and a robe. You lead the parade, put Mordecai there. Oh, what a discouragement. He comes home, he's unpacking himself mid-sentence. His wife and counselor say, if Mordecai's a Jew, and oh, by the way, he is, you're gonna fall. Immediately the servants come, take him to the banquet. Esther says, you are the man, you wicked Haman. And he's a bit, what? This is a definition of a bad day, amen? <laughs> God has put all of this together so that you and I can read what I'm gonna call poetic justice. Haman gets exactly what he deserves in the exact measure that he deserves it. I told you that at the Feast of Purim, which is coming at the end of this book, whenever Haman's name is mentioned in the reading of Jews, what would their response be? Do you remember this? Boo. Every time his name is mentioned. But at this point, when Haman is hanged on the gallows, do you know what the intended response is? Laughter. Can you practice that with me? Haman is hanged on the gallows. <laughs> is it okay to laugh at capital punishment for someone? And the answer, according to this story, is amen, you bet. This boy got what he deserved. And we as people of faith with our modern sensibilities might have a pause in our heart. That doesn't feel right to us. It's not apropos to laugh at someone's judgment. 
Recently, I was uh, <clears throat> reading through the book of Ecclesiastes in my quiet time. Jaron gave me a Christian Standard Bible, so I've been doing that one this year in my personal reading. And I came across this verse um, in Ecclesiastes 12. It says, When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The book of Ecclesiastes concludes with the justice of God seen in bringing every act to judgment, whether good or evil. And the response of godly people to that declaration ought to be, amen. Can you say that with me? God will judge every act one day, whether it was good or it will face the judgment of God. How do we respond? Because God is God. And even when it runs contrary to our own sensibilities, this is what the scriptures teach. I, I had to look this up. Ten years ago, I was preaching through the book of Revelation. And in that study, came across a truth that hit my heart anew as we worked our way at the end of the book through Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 through 10 contains five songs of praise. And there are four songs in verses 1 through 5 that look back on the judgment of Babylon. And then the song in verses 9 and 10 looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb where the harlot dies and the bride begins to enjoy her new life. But let me show you these verses. This is Revelation 19. John writes, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! Smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And as I taught that passage 10 years ago, I shared in that sermon that the word hallelujah is prominent here. The word hallelujah, which literally means praise the Lord, hallel in Hebrew, praise Yah or Yahweh, God, praise God. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And the only four occurrences of that word in all of the New Testament are here in Revelation 19, where four times the people of God are, are shouting, Hallelujah, praise God, as God judges his enemies and the smoke rises and they are destroyed. And that word hallelujah is actually an Old Testament word. It's a Hebrew word. And the only place that it occurs in the Old Testament is in the book of Psalms, where it occurs 24 times. Almost all of those occurrences between Psalm 104 and 117. And there, it usually, the word hallelujah in Hebrew is connected with punishment of the ungodly. 
I'll show you an example of that. Psalm 104, verse 35. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. What's the last word, church? Hallelujah. May the sinners vanish and the wicked be gone. That's the judgment of God. And, and I just got to tell I think that is amazing to me that God gave vocabulary to the saints for how to respond when he meets out justice and vindication and the fair punishment of evil. He gave us the vocabulary. He gave us the word. What is the best response when God judges wickedness? It's for the people of God to shout, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Mike, you almost beat me, okay? But this is what God has said. He gave the word. In the Greek language, the Old Testament word, hallelujah, hallelujah, is transliterated into alleluia in Greek. So they didn't translate the Old Testament word. They said, the word is good the way it is. We're just going to bring it into our language. So how do you say hallelujah in the Old Testament? Hallelujah. How do you say it in the New Testament? Hallelujah. How do you say hallelujah in English, church? Answer, hallelujah. How do you say hallelujah in Spanish? Answer, hallelujah. How do you say it in Russian? Hallelujah. How do you say it in Chinese? Hallelujah. In every language, it's a universal word. It is prescribed by the hand of God. God gave us the vocabulary. And he said, when I judge wickedness, here's what you say. Praise God. And that runs counter to our sensibilities. Esther chapter 7 is teaching us that it's okay to celebrate the demise of the Hamans of this world and to relish the divine justice meted out against wicked perpetrators in their judgment. Barry Webb, in his book that is a study of uh, a number of Old Testament books, including Esther, says this. Esther invites us to rejoice in Haman's downfall. Haman is not us, but our enemy. He embodies in a most striking way that inveterate hatred that the world has always had and always will have for God's people. And his downfall is not our achievement, but God's. A gift to be marveled at and rejoiced in. As part of its total message, the Bible's laughter is an, is an anticipation of the eschaton, the future events. A reminder of the fact that in a world where God remains sovereign, it is not the proud and cruel who will have the last laugh, but it is God and his people. And Webb cites Revelation 18. Rejoice over her heaven. <clears throat> And you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. We need to learn to await God's justice while the Hamans and Hitlers and Husseins of our world do their evil work. And exercising patience like that can stretch us thin, even to our breaking point. 
like the martyrs in Revelation, who have been victims of the cruelty and injustice, we too want to cry out to God and say, how long, O sovereign Lord, before you will judge? And here we must remember that we may have to wait a long time to see God's justice come. But make no mistake, God's justice never fails. Eventually, our enemies will reap what they've sown. God will one day set all things right, which means that there is a payday coming for Hitler and for the Duvalier family in Haiti and for the Kim family in North Korea and for Idi Amin in Uganda and for Mussolini in Italy and Pol Pot in Cambodia and Stalin in Russia and Mao Zedong in China and Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican. Each of these men, like Haman, had an unquenchable thirst for power and an unflinching brutality toward anyone who threatened it. Haman, you see, is the prototype for all the mass murderers, tyrannical despots, and ruthless dictators. And Haman got his just deserts at the end of this day. So the question is this, how do we respond to poetic justice? And the answer, I hope you remember this, is we say what? Hallelujah. Along with God's people throughout time. But more than that, we thank God for his grace toward us because while he is a God who will judge, he is also a God of grace to those of us who turn to him in faith and repentance. And though we don't deserve his grace, God loves to give it to us. And he has done so through the death of his son, which is his gift to you and to me. I want to close with a, a quote from Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. Yancey says this, no matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes seem unfair from the perspective of a person trapped in time. Only at the end of time, after we have attained God's level of viewing, after every evil has been punished or forgiven, every illness healed, and the entire universe restored, only then will fairness reign. Then we will understand what role is played by evil and by the fall and by natural law in an unfair event like the death of a child. Until then, we will not know and can only trust in a God who does know. We remain ignorant of many details, not because God enjoys keeping us in the dark, but because we have not the faculties to absorb so much light. At a single glance, God knows what the world is about and how history will end, but we time-bound creatures have only the most primitive manner of understanding. We can let time pass. Not until history has run its course will we understand how all things work together for good. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So the next time you face a dilemma, a hopeless situation where you're inclined to give up hope and accept the worst, I want you to be reminded today that God is there and God is in control regardless of how hopeless things may look. And I want you to realize that one day you'll be able to look back on that situation and from that future perspective, you will very likely see the outline of God's hand, his sovereignty at work, 
bringing about the exact outcome that he has planned. Church, trust him. He knows what he's doing. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we have glimpsed into this story and considered divine justice and the hard truth that that is, we confess, Lord, that we are comforted to know that every injustice you are aware of and one day you will make all things right as only you can. God, we pray that you would help us to exercise patience as we await those days when you will make all things right because in life, things aren't always right. And God, we have to endure seasons of suffering and loss and difficulty. And in this room right now are scores of stories of your children who are living with the after effects of injustice. And I pray that you would grant to us in that situation patience and trust. And yet, Lord, may we understand that it is right and good that we rejoice at divine justice and that we not shy away from seeing evil repaid according to its measure. Thank you that you are the judge of the world and that we are not. Lord, you will judge all things perfectly. We would not. And we rely on your justice one day. And I pray this morning, Lord, for any who are here who've not yet come to that point where they've thrust themselves on you for mercy. Father, we often think of you and our salvation as this great gift of forgiveness and grace and purpose, and those things are true. But Lord, we seldom consider the fact that apart from you, we are bound for the same kind of divine justice and retribution that the worst of the wicked will face. God, I think of the scripture that says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And I pray that we would take stock of the fact that yes, we get grace and goodness and forgiveness, but we also change from being those who are destined for punishment and judgment to become those who are destined for goodness. May the reality of the consequences of sin never leave our conscience. Lord, I pray this morning for the person who's here who has not yet trusted you. May they realize that they are today destined for judgment because of their sin. And may they call out to you for mercy and believe in you and receive your forgiveness. And we thank you for Jesus who purchased the possibility of our own salvation. God, may that person this day truly wrestle with their own mortality and may they call out to you in faith. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray and all God's people said, amen. Please stand and worship with us as we close.